Now we're going to open up our Bibles and spend some time studying the Scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and crack that open now. We're in 1 Corinthians. We're finishing up the letter of 1 Corinthians. And this series through the last few chapters, we've called What's Wrong with Church? And the big idea is the central thing that's wrong with church is we've made it more about ourselves and not enough about Jesus. And as we turn from self and turn back to Jesus, then we begin to walk in the freedom that Jesus has established for us. And so Paul's calling the Corinthians, he's calling us back to Jesus again and again in these final chapters. And we're kind of in like a series within the series in chapter 15, right? It's 58 verses long. And so we've been uh, breaking this into pieces. And so we're in this third piece of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible and you want to look in the black Bibles, it's page 961. Page 961 will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. Verses 35 through 49. And we're calling it this morning, Look Forward to Better Bodies. Look Forward to Better Bodies. Yes. Praise the Lord. Those of you that are young don't really know why we're so excited. You'll understand soon enough. We look forward to better bodies. Growing old means dealing with things that are broken, right? Uh, now, my wife and I are growing old. We're grandparents now, uh, but we're kind of fitness people. Like, we try to stay in good shape. We do the best we can. We try to be healthy. We try to enjoy the bodies that God has given us and try to keep them as healthy as possible. Um, but there are a couple of things that nutrition and exercise just aren't fixing in our life, right? Like, I messed up my lower back playing football in high school years ago. That was my religion before Jesus. Um, and it's just, it's not getting fixed through exercise and nutrition, right? I can take better care of it to make sure it doesn't progress too quickly. But I've just had this nagging pain with my back since I was 15 years old, right? And, and that's likely not going to get better until I see Jesus face to face. And he gives me a resurrected body. And I'll be completely healed. Everything will be all right, right? My wife has a similar issue. It's just a nagging issue that's ongoing. She's had hearing problems, severe hearing problems, has been wearing hearing aids, aids for many years, uh, started to lose her hearing in her, her young 30s, um, younger than most. And so that can be a nagging, frustrating problem. No amount of nutrition or exercise fixes that. She longs for the day when she will be complete and healed, right? She has hearing aids, and so that helps a lot, but the last year hers have been messing up a lot, so it can be really discouraging and frustrating and a reminder of brokenness when, when the hearing aids are not working, they're making weird noises, things aren't going right. Something's shifted. Just in the last few weeks, we are now more hopeful because she's got new hearing aids on order, right? And so she's looking forward to better hearing because she's got the new hearing aids on order. They're supposed to work better and have better technology, and right, the ones she has are just getting worn out. So now she'll still have the issues with her old hearing aids, and it's still discouraging and still frustrating, but she faces that discouragement with a different posture, knowing that the new ones are coming. Does that make sense? And that's kind of where we are as Christians. Knowing the new body is coming, that gives us a, an additional level of perseverance and hope with the bodies that we're living in right now. So we still live in brokenness. We still have disease. And, and we pray, and sometimes God heals us here and now, but we know the ultimate healing is what we call heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, resurrected bodies, resurrected world. That's what we look forward to. And so Paul is calling the Corinthians and us to look forward to those better bodies, the new creation, knowing that God is going to make all things right, that we're made for something more than this brokenness and pain. And so that's something that we should hope in, and it should help us to live in a new way now. 
knowing that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead, gives us hope that like, wow, that's, that's where we're headed. And so it helps me to not be discouraged, not just give up on life, but I can continue to pursue him and to serve others with this body that I have. We look forward to better bodies. So let's read, starting in verse 35, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Seems like a reasonable question, right? But Paul answers harshly in verse 36, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. That's an important verse that we'll come back to again and again. God gives us a body as he has chosen. God is in charge of this. We might be wondering, why, why was he so harsh with them? We'll look at that more in a minute, but I want to pray just for our time of looking through this text. We'll look at many more verses as it unfolds, but I want to pray that the Spirit would meet us here and help us to be hopeful in this reality that Paul is calling us to. So let me pray for our time. God, we ask that your Spirit would be here and enliven our time of listening and studying and sitting under your Word. We trust that, Jesus, you speak with authority and relevance as we listen and pay attention to your word. And so we pray that your spirit would help us to obey, to be changed by it, that you would make us new, that your resurrection power would start to be true in our lives as we hear, and it's joined by faith. We pray that you'd transform us, that you'd shape us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the big idea is that we're looking forward to better bodies because of what Jesus has done, right? We said last week his death uh, forgives us of our sins, but his resurrection guarantees that it's effective, proves that he really has conquered sin and death, that he really is king, that he really does rule and reign. And so we're looking forward to better bodies, just like Jesus now has a new creation resurrection body. Um, the danger on the flip side of not believing this that I think the Corinthians were falling into and we fall into sometimes is a similar danger to what happened to Adam and Eve. It's listening to the lies of the serpent, to the lies of the devil, right? So here's what serpent, the serpent told Eve you won't really die. Surely you won't die. And I think we're in the danger of hearing this message, him saying, you won't really live. He said to Eve, you won't really die. And they did, and we did, and we're dying every day, as Paul said. But also he has promised through Christ because of what Jesus has accomplished that we will live, that we're gonna overcome this death and sickness and pain. Jesus has guaranteed it, he's proven it. And so we need to make sure we don't listen to the lie, but we hope in the resurrection. So three things that we can understand from the text. Number one, better bodies are easy to imagine. This is where he's challenging them. You fool, how dare you think this? Better bodies are actually easy to imagine. That's what Paul's going to say. Number two, better bodies are common to creation. He's going to unfold a lot of different places in creation where we see these kinds of contrasts that, that point to this reality. Better bodies are common to creation. And then Thirdly, better bodies are typological. That's our big word for the day. Say typological. Good job. All right. We'll have fun with that one. That's our third point. Better bodies are typological. Now, a couple of cross-references I'll give you, and then we'll move on to the outline. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Corinthians 5 talk a little bit about death and what we're looking forward to. And there's some confusion, and um, we don't understand all the details here. I think the basic idea is when we die... 
as it's described in these passages, we go to be with God immediately. So there's something much better than now that we pass into immediately upon death. And so we talk about seeing him face to face and being at peace with him. And then yet there's still this even further, better, cooler thing of the new creation, the resurrection of all things, and Jesus wiping away every tear. So it's hard for us to fathom exactly what that looks like, like somehow some sort of spiritual presence with God and then a future complete physical resurrection. Theologians disagree on the details of that, so those are cross-references you can go and look at. But what we're clear on is we're looking forward to a physical resurrection. We're looking forward to that. That is for sure promise. Sometimes we just get a little mixed up in the details of like the order and how these events will unfold. So the first idea is that better bodies are easy to imagine. Better bodies are easy to imagine. And so we have to deal with the harsh language that Paul seems to be using here in verses 35 through 38. He says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Why is Paul so harsh? I think, first of all, we misunderstand what fool means. I think in modern language, we tend to use fool as ignorant, like, like dumb, like you didn't know the answer. You know, like, I don't know the answer to this, Paul. What are you saying? And he's like, that's wrong. That's evil that you would even ask that, right? Like, he seems really harsh. We need to understand this. When you look at Proverbs, and then you compare it to some of Paul's languages in Romans 1, we see that a fool is a, is a moral statement, It's not just an ignorance. It's not like a fool is just someone that doesn't know things. A fool is someone that refuses to see what God is showing them. That's what a fool is biblically. A fool is someone that covers their ears. God is speaking to you saying, this is my plan for your life. I've given you life through Jesus. And you're going, la, 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 I can't hear you. That's what a fool is biblically. Refusing to listen, refusing to learn, refusing to pay attention to what God is saying. So I think that helps us understand a little bit of of why Paul is challenging them here this way. It's like, you fool, you're you're not wanting to believe the resurrection. That's what he's saying. This is a little bit like presuppositional apologetics. Uh, In the, the world of defending the Christian faith, it's called apologetics, giving reasons for what we believe. There's one side called evidential apologetics that focuses on, well, here's a reason to believe, and here's a reason to believe, and here's a reason to believe, which is great and helpful to study those things. And then there's this other side called presuppositional apologetics. And I think it's a little more like this. It's like, you don't even want to believe. Come back later when you actually want to talk about this, right? <laughs> you don't care. Your heart is hard and you don't want to believe anything you're seeing. And so that's what Paul is doing here. He knows the Corinthians. He spent years with them. And he's like, guys, you're playing a game here. You don't, you don't want to see what God has already shown to you very plainly. So again, the big idea is that better bodies are easy to imagine. It's easy for us to imagine that God could fix all this. But the Corinthians are like, no, I don't, I don't want to believe that. I grabbed a picture of someone covering their eyes. The question for us to ask about our own hearts is, is that, is that what we're doing with the data that God has put before us? Both in creation and in his word, are we saying, no, I don't want to, I don't want to see this. I don't want to deal with it. I'm scared to hope. Paul says, hope. It's easy to imagine that God can fix all of this. Romans 1 is a great parallel. In Romans 1, he says again and again that we see clearly that God is there. We see that he's made everything. His, his invisible attributes, his power, his creativity, God's goodness is seen in creation. We see it, and yet we refuse to pay attention to it. Paul says, because of that, we are without excuse. We've all seen it plainly in creation. We've all seen that God is there, 
And we cover our eyes, we avert our stare, we, we turn away, we cover our ears. We, we don't want to pay attention to what God is telling us. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't be, don't be foolish, but pay attention. See, right? I mean, look outside. Walk outside. It's gorgeous. God did that. As human beings, we're made to say, God did that. That's beautiful. This is fantastic. It's encouraging. It's enlivening. Yet again and again, we, we say, no, I don't believe it. I can't believe it. So don't use foolish excuses to resist the good news that God is making all things new. I had a preacher that used to say it this way. The good news is too good to not be true. In our culture, we say it's too good to be true. This, this is too good to not be true. We know it intuitively. You know it. I know it. And that's what Paul is attacking here. He says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. We see that in everyday life. We're in the middle, right? We're in the, the second installment of the trilogy, and it's painful because everybody's dying. And he's like, but that's, that's a part of every story. That's a part of biology. We see things die. We see seeds die. They go into the ground. They're buried. And then what happens? Again, look outside. Green buds, new life. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God makes it grow. God does this. God transforms things, and we see it happen every day. Don't close your eyes to this reality. It's, it's easy to imagine that God is remaking us. Verse 37 says, What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen. God's doing it. God's in charge. God is sovereign. And each kind of seed, its own body. We'll come back to that in the next section. But I just want to stop here and think, how do we apply this? It's easy to imagine it's foolish to cover our eyes to this reality. The resurrection is easy to imagine just from the created world, and it's foolish for us to say, no, I refuse to believe it. So how are we going to imagine this? How are we going to enjoy this truth? He's stating the bare facts. It is. God can do this. You know it from just seeing creation. How do we live this out? Well, there's a text in 1 Peter 1 where it says you have to purpose to, to ponder what God is doing and look forward to Jesus coming back. But this is something that Christians have to make a spiritual discipline in our lives to imagine what he is doing and what he's going to do based on his resurrection, based on the story of Jesus. So 1 Peter 1, 13 15 says, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Uh, this language is, is very like in the weeds. It's like strap on your athletic wear mentally, okay? <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's like, get yourself together, tape yourself up, get ready to fight mentally. This is a fight. The, the way human beings lean is we all just say, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. We all turn away from the glories of creation and refuse to give God glory. Here he says, prepare yourself to fight mentally. Set your hope on Jesus returning, the grace that he's going to reveal. Peter says it this way. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking forward to. And so he says, you've got to get up every day and, and tape yourself up, tape up your ankles, put on your cleats to set your focus on that grace. We have a God that's returning for us. The grace of Jesus. How do we know he's returning for us? Well, we know because he came the first time. 
And so because of what he's already accomplished, we know he's coming back and we know resurrection is coming. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we look forward to the future resurrection of all things. Because he didn't leave us in our sin, but he came and snatched us out of us, out of it, and adopted us as his children. He forgave us of our sins. He made us his child. Because of that reality, the Spirit helps us to cry out, Abba, Father, and we can trust and look forward to. He's going to finish what he started. Even though we live in the second installment of this trilogy, the happy ending is coming, and we can look forward to that. So determine to set your mind on that grace. And then he goes on, he says in verse 14, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So I share this passage from 1 Peter to show you the parallel of what Paul is saying. So Peter is like, set your mind on this coming grace of Jesus returning. And what's that going to do? That's going to translate into you no longer living in your former ignorance and passions and addictions. But you're going to be putting those away because you know you can trust God. And what we said last week as we looked at the point that the resurrection destroys sin, as we said the irony of the Christian life is that Jesus has absolutely taken care of all of it for us, that actually empowers us to fight. We would think, oh, because Jesus has taken care of all of it, I can be lazy, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we'll all die, right? Like I can just give up. No, that Jesus took your sin seriously is what empowers you to take your sin seriously and fight against it and pursue him in obedience and love and passion. That's what Peter is saying as well. He's saying, get up every morning and set your mind on the grace that Jesus has given you. And as you do that, you're going to be leaving behind those former passions and sins. You're going to be obeying Jesus is the flow of 1 Corinthians. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, we, we let go of the sexual sin. We let go of the greed, right? 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. He's like, we put those things away because we're pursuing Jesus. His absolute grace sets us free to no longer be ensnared and enslaved and be debtors to those sins of our flesh. It's not a perfect switch that's flipped and we never sin again. It's a stumbling forward in faith in our Abba Father who loves us getting up every day and setting our minds fully on the hope of that grace. Second point is that better bodies are common to creation. They're common to creation. We'll look at verse 38 again. This is kind of a key pivot point here. He, he makes it all about the sovereignty of God. He makes it about what God can do, not what we can do. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. So God can do this. We see it in the natural world. There are these seeds. They look dead. They don't seem like they've got anything in them. We stick them in the dirt, and God brings life. It's an amazing, beautiful thing. Verse 39, he goes on about the animal kingdom now. He says in verse 39, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So the big idea is that better bodies are common to creation. We look at the created world. We look at animals. We see different kinds of flesh, skin. Uh, we see scales. We see feathers, right? Like variety. He's like, this is to just feed our imagination. This is common to creation. God can make better bodies. There's all kinds of contrasts. He's like, look at the, the sun, the moon, the stars. There's all sorts of difference and variation. As we look at that, we're like, oh, okay. God can make my, my temporary body now. And he can remake it somehow transformed and no longer so broken. Something glorious and yet still physical, which is just hard for us to imagine. And again, I say this every time the subject comes up. For us, being in sin, we associate our physicality with sin. 
because it is so much a part of our physicality. But God is remaking the world, and there will be physicality without sin, without death, without decay. And Paul's saying that's what he's creating. That's what we look forward to. Verse 41 again, there's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Verse 42, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. Here's the analogy. Just like there's all kinds of diversity in the world that we can see and observe and, and glory in, it's that way with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So, so let your mind observe what God is already doing and say, oh, okay, if God can create all this, then he can make a perishable body and he can make a new imperishable body. No sell-by date will be on your new body, right? It'll just go on forever. We have lots of questions about the details of that. I don't know. Look at the resurrection appearances of Jesus. There's some mystery there, right? There's this incredible physicality, this normal physicality, and then like some unusual things that like didn't seem to match his, his previous life. We don't understand it. Paul's just saying we should, we should glory in it. This is going to be incredible. As we see the differing glories of, of different things in creation, it gives us the sense to wonder at what God's going to do in our own lives. He goes on and says in verse 43, it's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Commentators want to clarify here. He's not saying it's sown a natural physical thing and then raised a spirit, right? We are, we're always thinking ghosts. We're always thinking like, you know, floating angels or care bears or whatever your vision of heaven is, Right? But it will actually be sown as natural and then raised as spirit-animated physical body, right? We have to follow the whole train of thought. Don't just take that one word out of context with the rest of what he's saying. He's saying there's this new life, the spirit animating it. Everything's going to change. It's going to be amazing. And we can see that. We can be assured of that as we look at creation. Different animals, Right? So here's the spiritual discipline for this one. He's calling on us to go look at creation and wonder at what God has made and say, God's going to make even better things. Are you taking the time as a spiritual practice to observe creation and just wonder at it? That's a spiritual discipline. That's a real application in our spiritual life. I grabbed a picture just to compare two different animals here of a peacock and a sparrow. Peacock is big. It's loud. They're kind of wacky. They're colorful. They're gorgeous, they're weird. Sparrow is tiny. My wife and I joke, we call them fat little baby cherub birds sometimes, right? Like we have a bird feeder and they kind of dance around to the music and they're like this big. Um, just so you know, that's not to scale. Those are just my poor Photoshop skills there. I tried to superimpose the sparrow. I think the sparrow is like the size of the peacock's head or maybe half that size. And this is just one comparison, right? And just to be clear, Paul's not saying, Sparrow bad, peacock good, right? Or sun good and moon bad. Like he's just saying, look at all this diversity. If God can do this, then think how much more can he make something better out of you? We see this glory and you might glory in the tiny thing or you might glory in the big thing. You might glory in the moon more than the sun, but Paul's saying they're varying glories. And when you go outside and practice the spiritual discipline of appreciating God's creation, you will see the wonders of what he can do. And you'll begin to trust him more. You'll be like, he can, he can do this. He can fix this. There are days where you feel your perishableness, right? You feel your dishonor. You feel the sickness. You feel the pain. And it feels like this 
weight that can never be overcome. Paul's saying it will be. More than you can ask or imagine. It will be. Trust him. And the way that we get there is, is by looking at creation. That's, that's where we're told to start here. So a spiritual discipline for us is to go out and observe creation. Cross-references for this would be taking the opposite of Romans 1 that I talked about, right? In Romans 1, the sinners look at creation and say, I forget that. I'm going to worship the stuff instead of the God that made it. So, so reverse that, right? Because that's sin. Reverse that. I'm going to look at creation and say, God did this. God is good. I can trust him. Psalm 19 is another cross-reference where it says the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour out speech. That night after night, they're declaring his name. We can, we can go and we can watch and we can look at the sun and the moon and the stars and everything he's described here and say, God's talking to me. God loves me. God loves you. He is absolutely holy and he's gracious. He hasn't left us, but he's come after us in Jesus. So practice that discipline. And I think it looks like different things for different people, right? For some of you, it might just be walking outside and looking at the stars on a clear night and giving God the glory for that. For some of you, it might be floating in a river, right? Especially in August, it should look like floating in a cool river. It might mean digging in the dirt, planting, sowing, reaping. It might mean snuggling a puppy dog, spending time with a horse, right? It can look like all kinds of different things, but get involved in God's creation and say, God made this. God is good. I can trust him. Build that trust that God can do new things because you see the variety of what he's done in creation already. And then a second thing I think we can do is recount his faithfulness in our own life. I think it's a good spiritual discipline. Just think back to the times he saved you. Um, for those of us that are very clear about God doesn't always heal us, right? We can pray and God sometimes does heal our bodies. But ultimately, the, the true healing is the resurrected body. That's, that's where the real healing takes place, right? So we look forward to that. And being those kinds of Christians that are sober about that, that are real about that, we can kind of backtrack in a way where we, the, we then don't want to give God credit for the little healings. I don't know if this ever happens to you. Like an overly cynical kind of like, I trust in the future, but he's not involved now. No, he's involved now. Like if you were healed yesterday of some little minor sickness, you can know that that's just a little taste and the real thing is coming, but you can still give God credit for that tiny little healing you already got, right? Like God did that. He gave me a new job. God did that. Thank you, Lord. Praise him for every little gift. James says, if good things happen, praise him. Give him credit. A, a lot of my friends, I'm, I'm not very good at this journaling, but this is a great way to keep track of these answers to prayer. Journaling, writing down things you're praying for. It's a good way to look back and celebrate what God has done building these Ebenezers. Uh, Ebenezer is this Old Testament phrase for stones of remembrance. Uh, and so it's this idea, or stone of help. And there are other places where that's used with different Hebrew words as well, where the Hebrews were told to like stack up stones to remember God's saving acts in certain places. And so I would say all of creation is a type of memorial to his, his faithfulness. But then we can do that in our own lives too, right? We can write that in a journal. We can create an art piece. We can just talk about it with our friends like, man, God really was faithful and saved me in this way. We want to recognize these things that God has done. And then finally, the most important that we talk about week after week is praising him for his specific mighty saving acts. So there's general revelation. God created all things and that's awesome. And there's special specific revelation, right? The gospel, the good news of Jesus in the Old Testament the gospel thing that they looked back to was the exodus. The saving act of God was the exodus. That's what they had before the cross, and that's how they remembered that God's a saving God, saved them out of their slavery, set them free, gives them a new identity. 
And now this side of the cross, that ultimate saving act, the new exodus, is Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead to give us new life. So that when God looks at you, if you trust in him, he delights in you, he loves you, he's pleased with you. So we look back and we celebrate these mighty acts. We recognize that they're common to creation. We see God's creative power and his saving work, his diversity of what he's made. We see this common to creation, but we also have to connect the dots back to his particular saving acts in Christ. Okay, last point. Better bodies are typological. Better bodies are typological. Type, uh, the scriptural word, literally would be pattern. I just thought it would be fun to teach you a big word, okay? So let's practice saying it again, typological. Very good. Okay, you know a, a new big theological word. We're going to be in verses 45 through 49. As we look at this concept of our new bodies and the new creation, it's, it's typological. It's a, a pattern that God has set out. You could think of it as like literary echoes. This is poetic. God's writing a beautiful story. This is the myth that is true. This is the superhero story that's real, okay? So typology is this formal term for these literary echoes, these story echoes, like there was this king, right? King David, and he reminded us of God and God's faithfulness, but, but Jesus is the true King David, right? He's the better king, right? This king did some great things. He saved some people, but he was kind of a sinner like you and me. But the new king, he's a better king. He's a more perfect king, right? That's just one example of typology. We see the salvation of people through the flood, but the greater salvation of people when Jesus returns, right? We see all these kinds of types or patterns where we see a kind of halfway salvation in one story, but a fuller salvation in Jesus. In this text, the main type, the pattern that he's going to focus in on is Adam and Christ. He picked up this theme a couple of weeks ago as well. He's coming back to it now. Romans 5 talks about this a lot. There's the first man and the second man. There's the first humanity and the second humanity. There's the first class of people and then this new class of people. I said this before. It's like there are only two races. We all have different ethnicities and neighborhoods and cultures. But really, human beings can be boiled down to either in Adam or in Christ. Still in our sin, lying about it, as First John says, two options. You can either lie about your sin or confess it and trust Jesus to clean it up. So we're either in this race, in this tribe, or in the other. And there are two literary patterns. The new and better representative of all that humans should be is here in Jesus. So verses 45 through 49, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, just to be clear in Hebrew, Adam means man. So we think of it as like a proper name, but it's actually man in Hebrew. So the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are all those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are all those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So we've got patterns here. We've got types here. We've got two stories. And again, the question is, are you going to tell your story as if the second installment of the trilogy is all there ever will be? You know, this happens in every trilogy. Everything falls apart. The hero's getting defeated. 
Everybody's dying. Your favorite characters are getting killed off. You know that's the part of the story we live in right now, right? But the third part is coming. And he says we have a choice to see ourselves in the first part, death, dust, dirt, decay, or the second part, new creation, the renewal of all things, being set free from all of this. Not a Greek idea of disembodied Care Bear spirits, but, but real set free. Like we're going to be physical and not sinning. We're going to be physical, yet without the same limitations we have now. Again, we can't fully even imagine this, but we can see, man, God's powerful enough to do this kind of thing. And we see the pattern laid out when we compare Adam and Jesus. So the question is for you and for me, which part of the story am I aligning with? Which one is my identity? Am I an Adam who says, God, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I'm going I'm to bring sin and death into the world by my disobedience, my refusal to trust you. And I'm going to be living this life of corruption and decay. But I'm going to be trusting in myself. I'm going to be believing in myself, by golly. That's the race of Adam. It's where a lot of us live. Or by faith, we can be in this second story. The third part of the trilogy, the happy ending, the man of heaven, beyond the grip of the dust, of decay, of the perishing, of sickness, of death. The question is, where do you see yourself in the story? He uses language of image. We can bear the image of the man of dust. We all have. We've all reflected Adam's image in the world. But by faith, we can start to bear the image of Jesus, the man of heaven. I grabbed a picture of a mirror here, someone looking at a mirror. Um, this is sometimes an image of narcissism in stories. Um, sometimes it can be a good thing. It's interesting. There's kind of a mixed report. It's used in different ways in the scripture. James actually uses it in James. I think it's James chapter 1. I wrote in my notes. James uses it as a positive image, but he says, make sure you do the right thing once you've looked in the mirror, right? And so we live in a selfie world, right? We're always taking pictures of ourselves and then doctoring them up to make ourselves look better than we really are, right? And the scripture calls us to not try to inflate our own image, but to confess it, to be real, to look into, as James says, the mirror of God's word, face the reality of who we are, confess that before God and say, Jesus, will you, will you remake my image? Will you make me to have an image like you? An image of one who loved others, who always obeyed God, who served others, who gave himself up. Will you remake my image? What, what's your identity? Are you identifying with Adam? Death, rebellion, independence? Or are you identifying with Jesus, the man of heaven? Which identity do you have? When I first became a Christian, I started memorizing some scriptures. And this is an application point that I think is really helpful. There's a, a set of scriptures you can memorize called the Navigator's Topical Memory System. Highly recommend this. You can get an app on your phone. Uh, you could buy little cards. That's what I had back in the days before phones, right? Well, we had phones, but you know what I mean. Uh, cards, and you put them in your pocket, and you, you practice with these different memory verses. Um, but you can get it as an app now. It's like only five bucks. You can memorize different verses. And the first couple of verses I memorized were about my identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if, if anyone is in Christ, he's part of the new creation. The old has died. Behold, the new has come. That's the glory. We're, we're in the new part of the story. We're in the happy ending with Jesus. We still stumble. We still sin. But as we, by faith, trust in what Jesus is doing, we're learning to let go of those former sins and walk 
towards obedience. We're learning to trust him more and more, and he's remaking our image. He's conforming our image to look more like Jesus. He's shaping us to be like him. Like it talks about in Colossians, it talks about in Romans. Because of God's mercy, we're offering our bodies as living sacrifices now, looking more like Jesus, conformed to his image. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. The other verse we memorized was Galatians 2.20. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. I have to read this one because I changed translations, okay? I really did memorize it, but I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just these two verses are great. Memorize them. Own them. Identify with the new man, the new humanity, the new story. We're not just forever stuck in the second part of the trilogy. We're part of this new story, this new typology, this new pattern, this new literary theme of what God is doing, the happy ending in Christ. How do we know it's true? Well, we can, again, look back in creation and say, God's always telling new stories. And we can look at Jesus and say, I know it's true. Jesus didn't leave me alone in my sin, but he came after me. He gave himself up for me. And he didn't stay in the grave, but he rose from the dead, promising that we get to be a part of this new creation, the new heavens and new earth, the resurrection from the dead. So rehearse your new identity. Memorize scripture. Remake yourself as you trust in the story that he's telling. A couple of books that I think are helpful as well. Um, start with scripture, but a couple of books that I think are helpful in building on these topics scripturally are one book is called The Gospel-Centered Life by Thune and Walker. It's very helpful in understanding our new story being rewritten according to the good news, the gospel, the gospel-centered life. Another one is called The Cure by John Lynch. Both of these help you to rewrite your story to understand yourself being caught up in the new story that Jesus is telling for us. But again, memorize these scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5.17 and Galatians 2.20. We'll, we'll wrap up here. Again, the big idea is that we can look forward to better bodies because Jesus is already there. He's already done it. He's already defeated sin and death. He's defeated the ultimate monster, as we'll see in the end of 1 Corinthians 15. He's gone there. He's won the victory. So we can have confidence in what Jesus has accomplished, and we can look forward that we're going we're gonna to be set free from this as well. And here's the thing, though. There, there are a couple of other temptations we have when we struggle with our broken bodies, right? When we struggle with uh, ongoing sin, when we struggle with disease, when we struggle with relational dysfunction, brokenness in the world, war, famine, chaos, right? Our bodies are broken. This life is broken. And so we might think, therefore, I should indulge, right? I should try to numb the pain. I should pursue escapism and pleasure. That's a common way that we try to deal with the brokenness of our bodies and the brokenness of this world. Another option is this. My body is broken. The world is broken. So I should fix it by my own discipline. I can be more disciplined. I can fix it. I can, I can take control. And that frankly makes for better neighbors than option one, but it doesn't actually work. You can't do it. And Jesus spent a lot of time fighting the religious legalists of his day saying, sin goes much deeper than you realize. Your hearts are much more corrupted. You can't just discipline your way out of this. So that leaves us with the final option. The final option is what Paul's been calling us to, right? My body's broken. This world is broken. 
but I see the victory that Jesus has accomplished. And I'm going to trust in him. And because he's fully accomplished it, I'm going to then pursue him in trust and love and obedience. I'm going to offer my body as a living sacrifice. I'm going to give myself the way Jesus gave himself because I, I trust in what he's already accomplished. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you have saved us and you are saving us. You've adopted us into your family already. It's complete. It's finished. You delight in us because of your death and resurrection. But you are saving us. You are freeing us from the power of sin. You're freeing our bodies from death and decay. We look forward to a day where we are fully whole in your presence. Help us to get there by faith, trusting you, loving you, appreciating and and delighting in what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.